welcome to Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger, the podcast for anyone who writes. At Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger, we recognise that you're not just one kind of writer. Perhaps you're banging out a novel between copywriting gigs, or maybe you're a blogger with a sideline in poetry. Whatever type or types of writing you do, our goal at Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger is to give you the shot of inspiration you need to finish that novel, submit that thesis or launch that freelance career. I'm your host, Claire Lynch, and in this episode, I talk to Rosie Fiore. Rosie is the author of 10 novels, eight of them published, and in this episode, she reveals how she wrote those novels by carving out time around her day job as a copywriter. Rosie also shares how selling the rights to her most recently published novel, The Afterwife, written under her pseudonym Cass Hunter, allowed her to give up that day job to write fiction full-time. It's what every aspiring novelist dreams of, but as Rosie reveals, reality doesn't always live up to the dream. That's coming right up. I want to start by talking about how you got to where you are today. Until a couple of years ago, you were working as a copywriter and writing your novels in the evenings. You're now writing creatively, in inverted commas, because copywriting can often be creative. How were you able to make that switch from being a copywriter to a fiction writer full-time? How were you able to give up that day job? Um, I think uh, it was the luckiest of lucky breaks. Uh, As you say, I've I've been a published novelist um, for quite a long time and like most published novelists, wasn't able to make a living for my writing. Um, So I was bringing out roughly a book a year, but um, I think the figure is 75% of novelists, published novelists, make less than £10,000 a year from their writing. Ouch. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's a sad reality. Um, And that was me. You know, I was bringing in maybe eight to £10,000 a year on books if I was lucky and very happy and contented. And then I was approached by Orion, who's obviously a, a big publishing house, and um we collaborated on writing a book um or i wrote a book called the afterwife um which they decided they would market as a very commercial book and put the weight of the big publishers behind a big publisher behind them and they have an international rights team who went out and sold the book to other countries and i was extraordinarily lucky in that it was bought by publishers in nine different countries um and then a film company in china optioned it which was (laughs) which was crazy so I was sitting at my day job as a copywriter in a university marketing department getting these ridiculous emails saying this German publisher wanted to give you a telephone number sum of money and just laughing I thought it was hilarious I couldn't take it seriously at all but then when the contract started to come in my husband actually sat down put all the numbers in a spreadsheet and he turned to me and he said you can give up work for two years um, and that was, it was an absolute light bulb moment. Because as you say, I'd been squeezing my writing into uh, lunch times at work and evenings, and I felt like the most important part of my work was getting the smallest part of my time. And it was time to kind of bite the bullet and invest. So in December 2017, I left my job. And for the last just over a year, I've been a novelist. Congratulations. <laughs> um I want to explore how you manage that um, period when you were writing around the day job. But can I just go back and ask you about the approach from Orion? How did that happen? Because publishers don't just pick up the phone to you. 
Well, I think what they uh, what they were doing at the time, and I think it's becoming an increasing trend in publishing, was that they were looking for people to um, to write stuff that fitted into what they were trying to do. So uh, what they'd done is they'd done some trend forecasting um, and looked at what they thought would be big in the kind of a couple of years hence, because obviously it takes time to bring a book out. Um, and they discovered that what was going to be big was robots um, mm-hmm. and AI. Uh, so they went looking for a writer who could bring them a book that combined... Um, AI and robots with a strong human interest story with relationships between slightly older people, uh, family relationships. And um, they approached my agent and said, do you have a writer who could do this? And I will love her forever for saying, yes, I do. And um, we met and we talked about possible ideas and the afterwife came out of that. But I think, you know, publishers are beginning to do what other industries have done for years, which is to trend forecast. Interesting. So as writers, we should probably be aware of those trends too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, if if what you're wanting to do is get a quick win publishing deal, if there is a big news story or a big zeitgeist move and you're in there and you can offer a book, um, you are, are in with a win. So can we talk about how you produced The Afterwife, writing it around your copywriting job? How did you do that? <laughs> it was worse than that, actually, because um, at the time that I was approached to do The Afterwife, I was already under contract at producing a book for another publisher. Um, um, uh, I'm also published as Rosie Fiore by Alan and Unwin. So I was in the editing stage on um, What She Left, which was the book I was writing at the time. And then they said, in essence, we want a first draft of this by the London Book Fair, which was March of 2017. Um, and uh, so I sat down and worked out that I had to produce, to produce 90,000 words, I had to write 1,500 words a day, seven days a week. On and top of working. On top of working. And raising a young son. And editing another book <laughs> at the same time. Um, so what I did was I just used time, I carved time up very effectively, and it became a running joke at the university where I worked, that I'd go into the canteen, get my lunch, sit at exactly the same chair at exactly the same table, and everyone would ignore me and I would write. And I found that if I focused, I could produce 600 words in my lunch hour and then come home in the evenings and produce the other 900 and kind of fit in bits where and when. And hilariously, that still remains the way I work best, is in a kind of time-limited, focused, pressured way. Um, I don't know that anyone is particularly served by staring out of the window endlessly, hoping for the bird of inspiration to flutter onto their shoulders. Maybe they are, <laughs> but it doesn't work for me. I need screaming pressure and terror and a massive great big deadline. <laughs> so on that topic, can I ask how you've coped with leaving full-time work, having that space to sit and stare out of the window, waiting for the bird of inspiration? <laughs> Terribly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to say, um, 2018 was a was a very interesting year. I think I learned some very hard lessons about myself. Um, I learned that I need focus and structure, and I need company as well. Um, and that um, leaving me to my own devices isn't particularly effective. Um, it so happened that I began the year out um, out of contract with both publishers in that. I didn't have a deadline and a book to produce. So I was pitching ideas, but not necessarily getting a bite. 
Um, and I, in fact, ended up writing the beginnings of, I think, five books, all of which got turned down. And of course, then you're taking that knock to your ego. And that can be very difficult when you don't have other things in your life to make you feel like you're doing all right. So I found when I was copywriting, if I got a rejection from a publisher, um, you know, I still had a job. <laughs> I still had people who loved your work. And, and, and all of that around yes. you, you know. And, and so I found I found it quite stressful. Um, so I, and I mean, I'll talk about this more. Um, I decided that I needed to impose structure on my own life. And one of the things I chose to do was to embark on a master's in creative writing. Um, and what that's done in lots of ways is firstly it's given me some real deadlines because we have to produce 25,000 words of a novel as part of the writing of part of the MA but it's also given me a structure in that I have academic work to do to do during the week I'm in classes for a whole day um, and it's just given my life a lot more shape and a lot more direction. So you're a published novelist is there anything they can teach you so so much I, I can't begin to say it. I mean firstly I'm studying at Royal Holloway and the the faculty is extraordinary I mean it's full of just wonderful writers and wonderful wonderful teachers uh, the head of the MA is Lavinia Greenlaw who's a T.S. Eliot award-winning poet and a wonderful novelist in her own right but what they do is they put you in a class of 10 people and your that class becomes your critique group, your support, your sounding board. Um, and I've just found that the diversity of people in the group, everybody brings something new. There's a guy in our class who seems to have read every book ever written. Um, so he's a wonderful source of inspiration. There are people that have come from lots of different backgrounds. There's a sculptor, a musician, a photographer, um, and everybody brings something new. I'm the only published writer in the group, but what I have to offer in terms of my knowledge of commercial publishing is not particularly of interest to the rest of the group because they're concerned with craft and I'm loving focusing on the craft in a way I never had before. Uh, the way I described it when people, when I was asked in the original discussion in the class, why are you doing this? I said, it's because I feel like I've played music by ear for life. I've never taken a writing class and I felt like I've been one of those people who play in the pub perfectly competently and sings very nicely and can you know work out songs on the piano and I need to learn music theory I need to learn how to read music so has learning to read the music of your craft changed the way you write or changed the product uh, both um I'll answer both parts separately um Firstly, it's changed the way I write because my method has always been that I sit down and I blast through a first draft. Uh, you know, I write twelve to 1,500 words a day until I've got a first draft, head down and just push through. Whereas now what we're required to do is to produce small pieces of work, so 3,000 words, which then get picked apart in class and which you then go back and rewrite. Um, so I'm finding my forward motion is much slower, but my attention to craft and detail is much more considered. And I'm loving that. Um, I'm loving a sense that there isn't this pressure to produce a final product, that I can take time to explore. So I may do writing exercises around a character that would never be in the final book, but which vastly inform my understanding, which is something I've never had time to do before. Um, and yes, I do think that the work I'm writing is very different. Um, I think the novel I'm working on at the moment is much less commercial and much more literary. 
um, I'm very aware that if my publisher were looking at it, they'd go, well, you can't start the story here. It's taking you 25,000 words to get to the big crisis. But that's okay. I may unpick it and I may write a more commercial version of it, but I'm loving this process of deeply exploring things like place and character in a way I never have before. So so it sounds like you're de- feel you're, you're developing as a writer. Do you have a plan then for when the MA comes to an end? What, what will you do? How will you persuade the publisher to <laughs> take this non-commercial stuff on? Well, I mean, the interesting thing, which a lot of people don't know, is that many novelists have many faces. Um, so I'm Rosie Fiore, but I'm also Cass Hunter, um, and I can be someone else. Um, and very many writers do that when they write across different genres or if they've had a bad experience with one publisher where their book hasn't done well, they reinvent as someone else and pop up in a different place. J.K. Rowling as an example. Well, I mean, yes, I think J.K. Rowling did it for a slightly different reason because the weight of her name was so enormous in one area that she, you know, she wanted to reemerge as someone else. But, I mean, we had an author's dinner. We have a secret author's Facebook group (laughs) where we get to gossip. Um, And we had a dinner with a group of 10 authors and we all came down and everyone sat down one by one and went, I'm Rosie, but I'm also Cass. And I'm Mary, but I'm also Jane. (laughs) I thought we must look like a bunch of spies. (laughs) It was very funny. But yes, I mean, if I wish to publish as a literary novelist, there's no reason why I couldn't publish under another name. So on the subject of this other identity, Cass Hunter, what what was the reason for adopting that? Um, it, it was twofold. The first was, as, as I said, I was under contract to Alan and Unwin, and they didn't want me to publish as Rosie Fiore somewhere else um, because, you know, for the period of that contract, they own your name. You are an Alan and Unwin author. And they specifically said they wanted a name that had nothing to do with Rosie Fiore. So... I chose a name that had strong family connections, um, but um, <clears throat> but also it's a very different genre in that there's a kind of magical realism, um, science fiction aspect to the afterwife, which doesn't exist in my other work. So it separates. So people know a Rosie Fiore book and a Cass Hunter book are two different things. I, it's no secret. It says in both of my biographies that I am both people. And I hope that means that people who've loved Rosie Fiore's books would cross over and read The Afterwife as well, and vice versa. But um, it does just separate, so you know, I don't know, this is a beef lasagna and this is a vegetarian lasagna. (laughs) So when you sit down at your desk on a cast day, Mm. do you feel different from sitting down... Uh, you're just on a rosy day. <laughs> I think I think Cass's life is infinitely more glamorous than Rosie's. It involves much less cat hair and laundry and more swadding to parties. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think I have to put a different hat on in that in that um, the requirement was to write something very very commercial, very you know that hit lots of strong emotional buttons. Um, that was less about character exploration and more about painting a picture that people would instantly respond to. So yes, um, uh, in trying to find another cast story, what I've had to do is try and work out what the recipe was of the afterwife and what made it work. Um, And I've had varying degrees of success in, in trying to do that. It's a combination, I think, of plugging into something that's very much in the public consciousness, robots, AI, algorithms, um, whatever it is. And then also, making that the background to what is predominantly a very strong family and human story. Um, Whereas with Rosie Fiore, I can write about anything, really. I mean, I do tend to write about 
middle-aged women who are difficult because, you know, write what you know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you're talking about you or me there. So um, what are you... I mean, obviously you've got all these projects with that you're doing for your MA course and uh, are you are you working on a on a novel at the moment? Oh, well I'm working on a novel for the MA which um, at the moment doesn't have a title so I'm calling it The Evacuees and it's the concept is it's about um, a very near future version of Britain where the air quality in London is so bad that in the summer they begin to evacuate children much as they did in the Second World War um, and some children get evacuated to Canvey Island in Essex. So I've been spending a lot of time on Canvey Island, which is an amazing place. Um, and it's it's very much a novel about place, I think, and about and about that kind of Swallows and Amazons notion of children out from under parental control and what happens. Um, so my dissertation for my MA will be about writing in the voice of a child, specifically to explore mm-hmm. that. Um, will it be aimed at children or will no, it be no, 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 aimed at adults. So, so there is a strong adult storyline as well about the people who end up looking after children and what's going on between mm-hmm. them. But also, I want to write about those, you know, the, a pack of children and how they interact together. Um, so that's one thing that I'm working on. But the other big epiphany I've had this year is that um, my background is in theatre. My undergraduate degree is in drama, and it's always been my first love. And I've done lots of amateur theatre over the years. And this one morning this year I woke up and I thought, why do I think it's okay for me to be a professional novelist but only an amateur theatre practitioner? So I really, really want to build the possibility of doing writing for theatre professionally. Um, so my big project this year with the amateur company that I work with is I'm writing and directing an adaptation of Dracula. Fantastic. Which I'm, I can't begin to tell you how excited I am about doing, just about kind of the practice of creating theatre, devising and writing and adapting, which I've never done before, um, and just working out how that's done. Um, and, and does it feel very different from writing a novel? Completely different, um, because obviously, you know, in a novel, uh, in the novel of Dracula, Dracula crawls down the wall of the castle. In the play... I have to work out how the hell we're going to do that. You know, how the hell he crawls down the wall of a castle, how he transforms into a bat, all of those wonderful things. Um, and I'm loving it. I'm loving that process of unpicking a great work of fiction and thinking, what do you extract? What do you keep? How do you represent? Um, it is a great joy. I'm enjoying it immensely. One of the themes of this podcast is that you're not just one type of writer. And it seems to me you are a brilliant representative of that idea, you can turn your hand to copywriting, theatre, novel writing, thesis writing, even. Oh, don't make me cry. <laughs> academic writing, tell me about that. Oh, my word. I just, I've just handed in my first academic essay, and it is genuinely one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Uh, because, you know, when you write copywriting or when you're writing a novel, you off you go and you tell your story. Whereas with academic writing, I feel like you take one step and you're ankle deep in the mud and you have to cast around for a bit of wood to stand on, (laughs) being, you know, a quote from someone or someone else's theory about something. So just the process is very slow. And when I wrote as an undergraduate, obviously, you were given an essay question, whereas we were told just to write an essay. Yes. And that... I mean, I learned such a lot from the process of saying of, of launching in and trying to write without knowing what I was writing about and then working out that the hard work is in creating a question you can answer. Yeah. 
Um, so yes. <laughs> I think that's the nature of academic writing is that part of the writing process is about figuring out what you want to say and as you say what question you're answering yeah. when you're doing it at graduate level. Very, very difficult. But I've, yeah, I mean, I've, I've loved it. And obviously part of doing the MA is that in future I wish, you know, I'm hoping to teach and mm. uh, and uh, I will have to have some kind of research profile if I want to do that. So I'd better get it right. <laughs> so on the subject of teaching, um, what advice would you give to someone who dreams of becoming a published novelist? And it can be either writing advice or practical advice about getting that publishing deal um uh the, the advice is the same and it's very straightforward it's right <laughs> um it's really really interesting how much people will talk about writing without actually doing it um and novel writing isn't difficult because it's difficult it's difficult because it's long um because it requires stamina it really does it really does and any published novelist or person who's written a novel will tell you that that the crisis point is around forty thousand words which is about just under halfway through uh, which is the point where <laughs> you're in so deep you can't go back um and you hate it you absolutely hate it it's terrible it's boring no one's ever going to read it what's the point um and the fear you have to overcome the fear and keep going because the only way to learn about writing is just actually to be elbow deep in it and, and doing it because that's how you solve the problems. And and once you have a first draft, you can wrestle with it. Um, and, you know, to be honest, when you're writing your first novel, nobody's going to care that you're doing it. You're not going to get a lot of outside support. So just keep going, keep going, get the words down. And no matter how horrific they seem. It doesn't at the matter. It doesn't matter because the more you keep going, the more you problem solve, the more you learn and you can go back and revise. Um, so, yes, that would always be my advice is just keep going. Excellent advice. So uh, thank you. It's been wonderful chatting to you. I'd like to end with the quick fire round that I um, ask all my guests. So um, my first question is, what fuels your writing, coffee, tea, or something stronger? <laughs> well, I think it was um, it was Ernest Hemingway who always said, write drunk, edit sober. <laughs> <laughs> I find that doesn't work so well at 10 in the morning, so <laughs> definitely coffee. <laughs> what about when you're writing 10 at night? Oh, there have been glasses of wine. <laughs> I'm not going to compare the quality of the two, the two bits of uh, produce, but definitely coffee, so much coffee. <laughs> and um, so... When do you like to write? Do you feel more productive in the morning or in the evening? Are you a lark or an owl? Uh, I think morning. Um, I, um, I, I like to use technological tools. So I use Freedom and that blocks access to the internet on my computer between 10 and 1. Um, and that is the time where I'm going to get those words done. I mean, I'm also constrained by the fact that I have a small child and once he's home and bouncing off the walls, it becomes a lot different, a lot more difficult to write great prose. Um, but yeah, that quiet period in the morning is... So tell me about Freedom. Freedom is an app that you can download on your computer and you can use it to um, block, either completely block the internet or block a list of websites that you've chosen, which is what I do because obviously sometimes I may need to check an email or research something. Um, and you can either just start a session and say block for half an hour or three hours, or you can program it so it does it at a particular time. So there is all of my computers, the one indoors, the one in the summer house where I write, 
I cannot access Facebook, Twitter, the Daily Mail, Amazon, <laughs> the BBC, <laughs> all those time-wasting websites between 10 and 1. I can't. And you can't, once it's started, you can't switch it off. Um, so if I have to sneak off and look on my phone, then I know I'm really procrastinating. Yes, yeah. But it's a very effective tool. And I also use um, the Pomodoro timer. Me too. Love it. Um, which, as you know, is 25 minutes on, 5 minutes off. Um, because I, I'm not sure that I can concentrate for much longer than that. But I find a 25-minute blast, I can produce an extraordinary amount and then take five minutes to stare into the middle distance um, and then carry on. So freedom and the Pomodoro technique is how you produce twelve to 1,500 words a day. <laughs> that's the way. That's the way. And Ooh. Or an editor breathing down your neck. That's yes. another good system. <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> All three. Yes. Yeah. So... Um, when you do sit down, are you a, a planner or a plunger? Do you do you craft a detailed outline or do you just dive right in? Um, I've done both and I think it depends on the project. Um, I wrote a lot of novels where I, I went in with a very vague idea and kind of found my way through. And I think that there's some value in that. But I also think there's some value in having a plan and also having the, the, that, the strength to abandon the plan at various points. Uh, with The Afterwife, we had a very detailed synopsis in place when they bought the book. And I got two thirds of the way through and realized that things had changed and that the end of the book was needed to be different. And so I rang my editor and I said, what we thought happened isn't what happens, this is what happens. And she took a deep breath and she said, okay. And the book is, I think the ending is so strong because it's true to the characters now, rather than what we planned before. Um, so yes, have a plan be prepared to abandon it. Uh, I'm a big fan of post-its. Um, mm -hmm. So often I'll write plot points or chapter headings on a, on a series of post-its and then move them around to see what happens structurally. Um, that works quite well. Obviously with Dracula, um, because the structure is already there, I've had to be quite fierce with that structure and kind of break it down scene by scene, work out what happens where. How would you describe your desk? Clear or cluttered such a mess such a mess i know where everything is <laughs> but yes piled with books and notes and notebooks and all kinds of nonsense um and uh, at, at one point i had a little lego night um on my desk that my son gave me and he said this is your work night <laughs> every time i looked at it i could feel guilty if i wasn't working hard yes full of nonsense and uh hourly clear or cluttered do you prefer music or silence um, broadly uh, music, but not other ambient sound. For a while, when I first left my job, I used to go to a, um, one of those pay-as-you-go working places in Camden. And there was a guy who sang along with the background music until I wanted to kill oh, him. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'm making five quid an hour to be here. <laughs> so, no, I work in the summer house, um, which means I get to play show tunes, which my, my family wouldn't permit anywhere else. <laughs> so, yes, music, but otherwise quiet. And who is your favourite writer and why? Oh, big question. Um, very big question. Um, and I can only answer for where I am at the moment. Two writers whose work I currently faint with delight and wish I could copy are Elizabeth Strout, the American writer, who wrote, she won the Pulitzer for Olive Kittredge and wrote My Name is Lucy Barton, whose fine character work is just breathtaking. Um, and Kit Duval, who wrote My Name is Leon and The Trick to Time is her more recent novel, both for her 
beautiful, empathetic, lovely writing about people on the fringes of society in different ways. And also just because she is a writer of colour who came to fame in her 50s and her first act was to create bursaries for people coming up behind her. And I just think she's a magnificent human being. Finally, just one final writing tip, your best writing tip. Oh, oh my... (laughs) Finish things. Finish things. Both because you'll learn from them and also because that's what gives you confidence. Thank you very much, Rosie Fiore. It's been a delight chatting to you about your writing and your writing process. And I wish you the very best of luck with the MA and with all your writing projects. Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you listen. And if you could leave a review while you're there, that would really help me get the show noticed. Visit goodcopybadcopy.co.uk for free tips and advice on writing and the writing life. I've been your host, Claire Lynch. Goodbye till the next episode.